Welcome to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, your home for everything related to marathon canoe racing. Now, it's time to get your paddles wet with your hosts, Kevin Olson and Bill Mahaffey. Take it away, boys. Welcome back, race fans, to another episode of the Canoe Race World podcast. And today, we've got a great one. We are literally Canoe Race World. One of my pet peeves is that, hey, sometimes we're Canoe Race Michigan, and sometimes we're Canoe Race Texas, Canoe Race New York, Canoe Race Quebec. Today, we are Canoe Race World. Uh, Rebecca, we've got some special guests in the studio today. Who do you have for us? I'm so, so excited to um, have everyone meet my one of my like longtime paddle friends. <laughs> Every time we get together, I feel like it's just like, which has been really random. Like we've met other places besides in the UK. Um, but I have my good friend James Prowse here um, from, I guess, Hemel Hempstead. Did I say that right, James? Yeah. Uh, just outside of London. So, <laughs> and uh, his canoe partner for the Device East to Westminster 2023, Betsy Ray who is originally from New York and now living in the UK? Originally DC, then New York, oh. now London. Nice. <laughs> right on, excellent. So Betsy, excellent. On her, Betsy on her own is international and in bringing the, the flavor here. But <laughs> crossing oceans. So we are crossing oceans. Um, Betsy, I got to ask real quick before we get going, what brought you overseas? I moved to London for my job. So I, I joined a company in New York. They opened an office in London and I said, please send me to London. Uh, and they said, okay. Fortunately for me, uh, but it's been great. I've been here for four years now and hopefully staying long-term, fingers crossed. That is great. Um, it, London is now on my bucket list of places to visit, not just for the canoeing and the paddling aspect of it, but my daughter is doing this great big genealogy thing and she literally tracked our family back to like the 1300s in England. And I was like, holy cow, that's a completely different like thing that I never knew about myself. So now I have this burning desire to someday go over there. So I'm kind of jealous. And James, you I, are you lifelong London? Yes. No. Or England, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. I just north of London. Um, yeah, pretty much lived in the same town forever. Um, moving away very soon. Okay, is is that a is that a good moving away, or are we bummed about that, or should I just leave that question alone? Um, my fiance and I just this afternoon actually got accepted for an offer on a house. Yeah. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That is great. Well, well, thank you for joining us today. Um, really looking forward to having you on. Uh, now, you two just won the race over there, right? Let's start in the beginning with the race. Okay. Um, what is it? Like walk the listeners through that have no idea what this race is. Do you want to take that, Betsy? I, James is the master of all knowledge about the DW. So I can give the American perspective, but I think James. Yes. You yeah, let's do that. And then we'll, then we'll get the, the British perspective. We'll get them both. <laughs> the DW is... A 125-mile-long uh, canoe and kayak race, mostly kayaks. Marathon kayaking is really, really big in the UK. 
uh, which is awesome and very different from the US. And it starts kind of in the middle of nowhere, west basically of London. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say in the middle of nowhere. Someone from devices might be upset about that. Uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere though, um, and finishes at Westminster. So right in the middle of central London. Okay, James now 100, uh, 125 miles, I got to ask the question, what is that the equivalent in kilometers? Because they use like normal base 10 measuring systems over there, whereas we're like feet and inches and things that make zero sense here in the States. So it's just over 200 kilometers, but we all work on, we're all stuck in the dinosaur ages when it comes to distance. If you're going more than a meter, it's miles. Um, really? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm very disappointed. Very so, disappointed. Uh, speed limits of miles per hour and but then we we measure our times in kilometers or minutes per kilometer when we're in the canoe so we just make it up as we go along really <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome um now along the way we got 125 miles um there's a lot to this race as far as like portages and stuff like that right yeah so it's 77 portages um which uh, 50 of them are in the first half of the race um, and then they peter out so you, um, there's various options to that sort of how you can run several locks at once um, so we ported around locks which is where the canal goes up and downhill um, and then there's a couple of low bridges that you have to do as well uh, ah, there's like 40 oh, yeah. which is flat sorry um, okay and then you've got a series of about 12 miles where there's about 25 portages and then from there it sort of gradually opens up um through to down near the end you're about one portage every five miles till you're on the last 17 miles down to the end um through london uh yeah it's our title right so you're you have to go with the tide i guess or with the tide schedule so you're not going upstream and when you should be going down, I guess. Yeah, so they've tightened up the tide windows. Now, you used to be able to pick whether you were going for the morning or the evening tide. Now you have to go for the morning tide, so you have to paddle overnight to get there. Um, the tide windows work out to a four-hour gap, so you can arrive. Teddington is where the Thames goes tidal, so below Teddington, tide comes in and then it goes out again, so the river comes up and then it goes down, and you, you can't proceed past Teddington when the river's still coming in. Um, so yeah, you've got that four hour window. Uh, generally, the earlier you get there, the more water you have to push you out through London. Um, so you've got to calculate how long it's gonna take you to paddle those first 108 miles to get to Teddington, to get a big shove down to the finish um, most successfully. Okay, so there's, a, there's an aspect of this where if you get there too early, you, you might just be SOL or up a creek because the tide is rushing uh, against you, fighting against you. Is that what I'm understanding correct? Um, that would be what would happen if you're allowed to carry on. Um, there is a window, so you're not allowed to go through that lock um, until you're in that four-hour tide window. So, But the clock does not stop. So if you go much faster than you think you were going to, you just have to sit it out and wait Um for that tide window to open um but it's not as scary as it sounds it's you know 0.2 of a mile an hour is only half an hour um difference in time so you've got quite a bit to play with 
you've got a gap, a spectrum there to, to work with. Okay, that makes sense. Now, when you say 77 portages, like how long are these things? Are they? So it's, Betsy, do jump in if you want. Um, there's, they're usually about 50 meters long for most of them. There's a couple of longer ones. There's a couple of really short ones. There's a, several that are close together. Ultimately, you end up running the sort of minimum distance is three miles. Um, you can run if you choose to do some optional long runs up to five miles. Um, not only one over, you know, very spaced out. Yeah, of course. Um, so and that's that's total yeah. like total running distance for the whole race. So um, oh, each sure. portage itself might be just like a couple like a hundred meters or two hundred meters at most probably. Um, so yeah, if you do them all together, you don't actually have to like train for a marathon and for a canoe race. <laughs> <laughs> No, most of the time you're running, I don't know, 100 meters max. Yeah, the biggest difference in time with the portages is how fast you get in and out, really. Much more so than how you run them, which is probably a bit different than a lot of the like very long portages that you might get when you have to go like over a dam or something. So I, yeah, I can definitely see that with with 77 of them to do, I mean, portaging is something that a lot of people don't actually practice in our sport, right? Um, we, we go out, we get in a, a sit and switch canoe and we paddle, right? And we learn how to paddle on uh, lakes and we learn how to paddle on rivers and we learn how to do these different things. With 77 portages, you better be good at getting in and out of the boat in a prompt, efficient manner. Yes. Is that kind of an important skill? Do you guys practice that at all or? Oh, hugely. We had um, several training sessions where it would be like, right, today we are doing, we're focusing on portaging. And yeah, it's just so important. If you can get, particularly getting back in efficiently, and if you can manage to sort of step into the boat, push off the bank with your trailing leg, and then sit down and the boat's already moving, that's like perfect. Um, it's hard to do. But if you can really nail it, and the same with getting out, if you can come into the bank with the boat moving and you can stand up on one leg and then step out, um, you're, you know, you're laughing. But then there's someone else in the boat and <laughs> you're getting tired and it all starts to fall apart pretty easily. But if you just take the edge off, um, it comes together. Yeah, that was something we worked really hard on. Um, no, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, People laugh when I tell them, oh, I'm, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm working on portaging. You know, we're going to paddle the, you know, on the Asable. I live uh, on the upper Asable, Um And we're going to paddle down to uh, McMaster's today. And in the process, we're going to get out of the boat at town line. And we're going to run the boat up to the stop sign. We're going to turn around. We're going to run back. And we're going to get back in the boat as quickly as we can. Um, for our race or for the Triple Crown races here uh, in North America or even the Texas water safari, you know, there, there's a lot of portages and a lot of obstacles that you have to overcome and people just don't think about that. So they don't. So that makes sense that you would practice that for a race this large. Uh, Betsy, you got to give me like a funny portage story. Or which was your favorite, your worst portage this year? There's so many options, actually. <laughs> That's really not fair on yourself. At all. Um, so keep in mind, I think one of my biggest learnings was the difference in leg length between myself and James. I swear his are like double. <laughs> so 
fortunately for me, James kindly made a lot of adjustments and I also like really tried to improve my portaging a lot. Um, I think the worst portage was the first race we did together and I had not done much portage practicing and for, like we came out on this beautiful grass. It was like green, gorgeous, great spot to come out. Uh, I put my paddle in the boat before getting out. Again, this is like a huge no-no for the portages here. James picked up the bow. My paddle slid into the water and James just kept going. So the boat was fine because it was on this gorgeous green grass. Uh, but I was stuck there being like, James, I want the paddle. <laughs> I think what happened when I got the paddle out of the water and just ran to catch up with him. Yeah. I was going to say, you did, you did recover the paddle, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recovered the paddle. Uh, we actually did win that race. It was our first, I guess, our second race we did together. Our first race we did together that involved portages. Yeah, so I, I have a lost paddle story that I'll share here. Dirty confession. I owe a guy a paddle at some point in Junction, and I should probably, like, buy him a paddle um my very first canoe marathon partner we're doing the harry curly race we lose a paddle shortly after the portage um uh, and i'm like don't worry about it go 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 somebody will pick it up and nobody picked it up <laughs> yeah so my bad so i could yeah i i was very concerned when you told the story i was like man i hope she got the paddle so yeah, yeah all was recovered and and it was all up from there Oh, I think sometimes with portaging, that's almost the best way to learn. Like, if James had stopped and waited for you to, like, figure it out, it's like you, you learn by having that mistake once and watching your partner, like, run away with the boat. That like, I can't do that again, and you have to <laughs> have to adjust on the run. I, I, so uh, Mike and I did the DW in 2016. It's one of my, like, probably, like, it might be my favorite race. Like, it just the nostalgia of doing it was so great and being with uh, so many great people. Like, that, those memories are just going to live with me forever. But um, <laughs> I, I can attest to the same thing with, like, the longer legs versus the shorter legs. It's like he jumps out and it's like, my, it's three steps for me to make it to his one. And I'm just like, okay. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Please hold on. That makes so. me feel so much better. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that was a skill I know with us only having like a week on the canals. Um, I think that's probably what we had to work on the most. Um, we had done some little bit of, you know, some portage training, but in like Michigan in February, like, shoes to run in or anything and we didn't have any way to like emulate the canal walls so uh, we got like lessons on the ground from James and one of the other British paddlers Mike they would just like just try to kill us every single portage and we do like 10 and I'd be like if we could stay and then if we were like only losing a little on like four or five that was good and then we usually had like two that were like Paddles in the water, like shoes fell off, <laughs> like really bad, stupid things. But it helped us so much getting ready for the race. So you had, a, I know you had a good, good partner there, Betsy, to to show you the ropes. Yeah, the, you mentioned canals, Rebecca. Like, walk me through the bodies of water. Like, uh, we, we got 125 miles. We've established it's a little over 200 kilometers. Like, what are 
what are the bodies of water like from start to finish? So yeah. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead, James. Oh. You're the one who knows this. <laughs> so it starts in, like Betsy said, the middle of nowhere town devises. Um, well, it, the race started as a bet in a pub, um, and that happened to be in devises. So that's where the race starts. Um, and it was, can you get there in a uh, hundred hours to Westminster via the canals and then the river? So you start on, yeah, the Kennet and Avon Canal. Um, which it used to be a main arterial canal back sort of pre-industrial revolution. Everything got moved around on barges. Um, and then so that then you've got about 35 miles there of just flat canal water. It's about four to six feet deep, tons of portages. Um, yeah, and then you join up. So the Kennet and Avon there is the River Kennet starts flowing into the canal a little bit. Um, and then so you get down to Newbury and you start picking up a little bit of flow here and there, um, but still predominantly, you know, maybe slightly deeper canal water, a few bits of flow to help you along. Then you get down to a little town called Oldermaston um, and you start getting, a bit, it becomes a bit more uh, like a, a river that's been turned into a canal. So you've got some proper bits of flow, some proper twists and turns. That's my absolute favourite bit of the course. It's sort of pretty tight but not too tight and you just fly around these bends um, and then you end up paddling right through Reading Town Centre so we went through it about midnight so there were the youth of the town was out to shout at us a bit um, not necessarily encouragement uh, and then you pick up with the Thames uh, River which it varies a lot depending on how much rain there is um, some years you get down to the river and you hear people go like oh we're you know it's like we're still on the canal but just bigger um this year we were quite lucky there was a lot of rain but not too much rain so they still felt the course was safe to run um and then it's like a big i don't know how wide it is maybe can you guess how wide the river is in your feet sort of roughly no okay what, what would you in that in that section for those of you that have paddled both what would you compare that section to river wise here like is there anything in north america that's comparable um so for michigan paddlers i thought it was really similar to the grand river uh, so definitely like definitely bigger than our smaller streams like the sobel or even bigger than well it's got a lot more volume than like the susquehanna typically does when we're racing on it at the 70 um i think the susquehanna might be as wide in some spots but it's usually like just a lot shallower um so it's it's not a super it's like if you went up to like to the classique and race that it's definitely a lot smaller than that so it's kind of a i would say just like kind of a mid-sized river it's not um i wouldn't call it like a huge shipping you know, when you think of like the Mississippi or something <laughs> like that, okay. it's, it's not it's like the MR three forty people deal size. with. Yep. Good. No. Down that. Um, no, it's nice. It still feels like it has turns, and you know, like you can still like pick a line instead of being like, oh, I have to go a quarter mile out of my way to get over there. So it's it was uh, it's I think the year we did it was it was definitely lower than this year, uh, but it was a nice, like we had some flow and it was pretty nice. You know, it was just a pretty nice, like, uh, actually I was very comfortable paddling on it at night. Um, 
it didn't feel like there was a bunch of obstacles or anything besides the portages and the, the weirs. So those are like the dams that we're kind of looking out for. Um, those were the obstacles you obviously don't want to hit, but otherwise I thought it was like pretty friendly to just like having your light on. You're probably not going to like die by running into some mysterious obstacle that came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So just on, on the flow rates, um, there was a graph done recently on a website called canoeraceresults.co.uk. Um, that's a massive hive of information for all things DW. So the year you guys did it, um, we measure flow in cubic meters of water per second. I don't know what that must translate to cubic feet, but I've got no idea. Um, so the year you guys did it, it was 80 cubic meters a second. Um, when we just did it, it was 140 cubic meters a second. Um, and that was kind of it was a high year, but it wasn't a crazy high year. Um, so I'd say you guys had a sort of mid to high level and we had a sort of low, very high level. Um, I mean, some years you're running it and it's like 12 and people are like, what is the point of this? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds Man, like you, it would be the canal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you've got me like trying to do the math in my head at cubic meters per second, a cubic feet per second. And I think I might have just blew a gasket or something. I'll come back to that one. Like when I'm not recording an episode. Yeah, that would be miserable, though, if you're expecting flow and there's just nothing there. Yeah. So there was a, a K2 record attempt back in 2011 that was um, Ivan Lawler, who's I think he was a six time world champion across a few different disciplines, raced with uh, another guy called Ben Brown, who was the current K1 world marathon champion at the time. And there they had absolutely no flow on the river. Um, they got the fastest time ever down the canal um, to Reading, uh, even though there was no flow. But then they were going all out to break the course record. So they stuck that pace as hard as they could and just completely blew out. Um, but their only target, they weren't trying to win the race. They were trying to break that record. So they stuck to that pace until they blew up. And if you're not interested in finishing, you're just interested in breaking the record. And they went for it. So kudos to them. But no, it's very interesting. There's um, So it's great you brought that up, James. Uh, there's two different mindsets involved, right? Uh, that people don't realize there's going for the record, right? And we're going to show up until we blow up or we break the record and there's playing for the win. Um, and it sounds like they just went for the record and that's, man, that's gutsy. That takes a lot of courage just to go, look, we're here to try for the record. If we get it great. If we don't get it. Oh, well, so. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot with the, the Asabo because people set out looking to break the record or, you know, set a classification record. Um, I mean, fairly, fairly often. Right. But there's there, I would say, like, to get lucky and to get the record, because it does involve a bit of luck. You have to have the shape to do it. You and your partner have to match up really well and both like have like a good race for you physically. You know, nobody gets sick. And then you also just have to benefit from like the weather cooperating which you have absolutely no control over so you can be in the best shape have a perfect race and just just not get the opportunity if if the course conditions aren't there it 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 really doesn't it really doesn't matter right because the level of competition um is so good that somebody somewhere has had those good course conditions as well as the proper preparation and the proper technique 
and that level of boat magic with their partner and they've set that bar really really high so yeah, yeah this year i i think it's worth noting the k2 record was set um so that's pretty that's really cool because i think that was was that like 30 years standing something like that wow so the yeah the it's a whole nother podcast to talk about the changes that have happened since then um but yeah it was an amazing thing to there was one moment coming out of Shepparton where we just got overtaken by a mixed K2. So you kind of know everyone else that's in the, or we know everyone else involved in the race. And we just got caught by a mixed K2. Um, oh, that was Dan Palmer and Cat Wilson. Uh, at, they overtook us just before the lock. The C2s tend to be a little bit quicker across the portages just because it's slightly higher seating positions, a little bit easier to get in and out. Um, so we caught them back up again across the portage and sat in and then just behind us were these guys Keith Moore and Tom Sharp who everyone knew they were going for the record and the win um and then it was all three of us came out of Shepparton together and it was like so you've got the overall winners the mixed K2 winners and the C2 winners all paddling out of Shepparton and I I was had just enough brain power left to think wow this could be really special if we all stick the win um uh, yeah, we did. So that, I thought that was really fun. <laughs> when you mention everyone uh, knowing you guys and like, and then also getting caught from behind, you know, uh, that's that's one thing because it is a time trial, right? So you're, I mean, essentially it's a time trial. We're all trying to hit the tide window in this four hour, this four four hour section, so we can get down downstream and finish. Um, so we're all starting at different times, and you're kind of overtaking people and. Uh, just kind of all the time or, or being overtaken. And when Mike and I raced, we were, we didn't know anybody and uh, we're going along and like sometimes we'd pass people on portages and then they'd put in and right behind us or, you know, you'd get past, but you didn't know because you're all running and stuff. And we, we put in after this portage and this kayak puts in right on our, our tail and they're talking like for 25 minutes, so like we gotta pass the C2. Like the C2 is just holding us up. And I like turn around and like, hey guys, anytime, just let us know. Like we'll let you by. We don't want to be in the way. Like, you know, we're all going, uh, trying to get to the tide window and they don't say anything. And we're going along, man, we just gotta get around the C2. I'm like, just go ahead. And I'm like, maybe my accent's weird. Like I don't know what I'm saying. Cause like my brain, like British English wasn't always coming out right when we were on the portages. I'm like, what is going on uh, <laughs> when you're tired? I don't know how the French athletes do it, quite honestly, because I can't understand anything when I'm racing. But we're going along and all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're actually going faster than we were before we rode this team. So they figured out we'd actually passed them and they didn't know it. And then they just figured because we were C2, we were slow. So that was kind of funny. Like they finally dropped off because they realized we were like ahead of their pace and like it probably wasn't good for their long-term race. But um, it's just, it just kind of funny, like meeting people in the race. Everyone was great. I mean, no one was, everyone treated us awesome. And like it's one of the best experiences if you have a chance to go over there um, actually I can hook you up just like message the Canoe Race World podcast and and I have some contacts and of course I'll throw you on James and Betsy <laughs> and, and they, they actually For sure. know you, what's you going two are, on. Yeah. You two are now our official <laughs> our, our official British ambassadors right yeah 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 uh, that's great no yeah so you, you mentioned kayaks you mentioned C2s 
walk the listeners through what you use for C2s over there. Now, it is still traditional sit-and-switch paddling, but you use an ICF C2, right? It's not like the like the North American USCA Pro Boat standard. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, you guys might be able to get the scoop on this slightly better than I can. Um, marathon World Championships always used to happen in high kneel boats. Um, and then I... The story goes that um, the ICF, the International Canoe Federation, wanted to involve some, you know, these American pro boat paddlers in it. Um, so designed this ICF spec um, C2. But as far as I know, pretty much all that happened was they went, well, it can be this long and it can be this wide. So we'll join those four dots up and uh, we'll end up with the C2. I think I've... Rebecca, you might be able to check this. I think I've read Everett Crozier and Tim Trebold might have paddled that. Like at the World Championships, the year it came out. Um, I think Maybe not they together. may have. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did. So I know Everett uh, designed quite a few different ICF C2s over the years because he was a boat builder and designer here in the US. And uh, they like they raced they built a bunch to go race at different places and uh just to see if they were fast enough a lot of what was happening um is sometimes like for just sit traditional like more of a sit and switch like traditional marathon racing um they're making them like just not really stable enough um i mean i know like the high kneel ones are crazy unstable but it's you know if you're going to race for two or three hours in it it's nice to have something <laughs> where like switching isn't like super dangerous <laughs> so um I know, like, my parents have one that they have so they can actually cut it in half and take it on a plane. So then you can bolt it back together once you got to your destination. So I think they had that made to race in Australia and ended up something happened and they didn't end up going. Um, so that's what we trained in a little bit when we were here. And these we didn't have. A, so I believe the ones you race are Winona Mach 1s. I think that's what, the, like, the design name is and we didn't have one here to to train in so we trained in my parents but it's like significantly tippier than the mock one so we were like so relieved to get there and be like we don't just have to hold our breath every time we get in and out because like this is gonna make for a lot of long portaging <laughs> um but yeah i think it's it's the winona mock one if i'm not mistaken right yeah um so that's the one that's sort of readily available there are a couple of other icf spec boats sort of dotted around. I don't really know much about there's a Mark II as well, which is quite a lot a fair bit tippier, um a little bit faster, but they're like hen's teeth. You can't get hold of a new one. You're 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 trying to find one that's still in good enough shape to want to race. Um, and then there's a couple of other designs around, but again, almost impossible to buy new and very hard to actually find one you'd want to race. So if you know anyone that builds boats, you might want to design a new ICF. So the ICF has since changed their rules. There's now, there's a maximum length. There's no minimum width anymore. Um, so the market is completely wide open for a new design of ICF sit and switch C2. And that's, that's interesting. The maximum length is what, like 21 foot, four inches or something like that? Um, six and a half meters, which is around 21 feet. I don't know exactly. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> six and a half meters. No, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm just guessing. I think I read that somewhere. So yeah, I will go with six and a half meters because that's <laughs> more scientific. Um, 
No, so- I will say with the Mac ones for doing the DW, that extra stability. Um, so they thought the primary stability was really good and it's kind of flat on the bottom where you get in. Um, and that made it really nice for just knowing how often we were going to get in and out. Uh, so actually when we got home and we got back in our like regular Pro Boat C2, the secondary stability is a lot more, but the primary was not quite as much. So I remember getting in with Mike and I'm like, I'm sitting on a beach ball. This is, <laughs> is comfortable for me. The, they, we have a little more rocker in our boats. They turn a little faster. And I was like, not used to that anymore. And like, take me back, put me back in the ICF on the canal and I'll be happy. <laughs> so generally, they feel a bit slower to paddle. Um, they're nowhere near as lively, but they do go a bit faster. This is the ICF boats versus the pro. The pro boats feel amazing, but the ICFs are a little, unfortunately, a little bit faster. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I had the opportunity to paddle an ICF for the first time down in Texas, um, almost one year to this day, um, and it was like you mentioned that the. The, the pro boats feel a little more lively. The ICFs were a little faster boat. Um, that's interesting. So now you can build them. There's a maximum length, but you can make the thing as narrow as you want. I'm sorry. You got me like thinking through my way as to how this would work. I think they, I mean, that's, that's the rule. It has, to, it's a maximum length. You can make it as narrow as you like. Um, I think you can even have concave sections now. Um, so you always used to have to have, you couldn't have any concavity in the boat so having that tucked stern was an impossibility um obviously before you spend thousands of dollars on uh, designing a boat you should probably check the icf rule book um, <laughs> yeah I, it's it would be no, amazing to see what people came yeah. up with that's interesting now do they have much um high kneel over there still or is that because um, we, we don't see that here very often at all outside of some of the clubs um things of that nature and then obviously you've you know the the american nevin harrison with her olympic win stuff like that but we, where i'm from you just don't see a kneeler on the asable um is there much like that happening over in london over in europe it's definitely more in the uk than it is in the us i think one of the challenges uh with that in the us is how far apart everyone is um so I actually started paddling through flatwater sprint kayak uh, with, you know, high kneelers in D.C. And our closest competitors were in New York and Georgia. So I think that's a lot of what you run into in the U.S. versus here, you know, on the Thames, it's so perfect for flatwater paddling that you have like five clubs within 20 miles of each other, if not closer. Um, and each club has you know, at least 100 members. Um, it's a lot more kayak still than it is high kneeling, but it's an amazing uh, culture in terms of just seeing people out on the river constantly um, paddling from all these different clubs, competing against each other every weekend. Um, it's really unlike any um, paddling culture I experienced in the U.S., but I'd, I'd love to see the U.S. be a little bit more like that. Yeah, we, we've talked about that a little bit, and we actually had a guest on uh, a few episodes back that's really trying to get a, a club environment going here in the States. Um, we have barriers to entry to paddling here, and one of them is access to equipment and, and waterways and things of that nature. So the club model, I guess I'll use the term model, is pretty strong over there? Yeah, very strong. 
um, it's really, I guess there's a few, I guess marathon, there's a few people who operate outside of the club structure, but I would say they're still part of clubs like James, some of the paddlers in like Trang I'm thinking about would be the only ones who are not part of the club structure. Yeah, most of the time, if you start making noise about, uh, so people hear about the DW and they sort of say, oh, I want to do this. How should I get involved? And the first thing is like we have British Canoeing is the national governing body. They have a, you put your postcode in and it shows you where your nearest clubs are. Um, and so that's just sort of how you get involved. Um, there are, like Betsy said, there are a few sort of independent strongholds that probably should be clubs if they were a little bit more organized. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a sort of a few people dotted around uh, who are sort of independent hotspots, but generally everyone's part of a club. Okay. You, you mentioned the government there briefly. Does the, uh, now does the government over there have a big supporting uh i guess role would be the word i would use for for paddling over there or is it all pretty much independent or um here in the states it's a little different and then you go up to canada and it's a huge part of their culture and you've got regional people that are like this is what they do they're in charge of the paddling and you know training the paddlers um what, what's it like over there so i I think the marathon side of things is slightly destructured compared to the recreational side of paddling. So like my canoe club, Hemel Hempstead Canoe Club, is very much, it sort of back in the day it was a racing club and now it's very much uh, what you're doing in that skinny fast boat trying hard kind of, you know, why are you not joining us down the pub for a drink and then we'll paddle back. Um, so, but then we also have um, an amazing lottery funding. So like my club was able to, you apply for lottery grants and they will give you money to uh, sort of help the community and things. So we were able to buy sort of a new fleet of recreational whitewater boats um, through that. So that side of things is really helpful. Um, yeah, the, sort of it's an easy access. It's a lot of entry level equipment rather than high end stuff. So like if you're getting into kayaking, the club might Betsy's club Richmond is much much bigger than my tiny little club Hemel but so we have a range of sort of introductory kayaks and an ICF C2 um, and then it's sort of if you want to progress that you you know you need to get your own boat and things but at that point you've probably already committed to the sport as something you want to take a little bit further. And they'll have organized novice sessions as well. Um, I mean, again, depending on the club, but Richmond, which is, I, I guess, probably the biggest club in the country. Um, they have like multiple times a week, novice sessions for new paddlers, loads of equipment for newbies, volunteer run sessions. Um, so it, it makes those barriers to entry so much lower. You don't have to have a car, right? You just like show up at the club, You've got a boat, you've got instruction, paddles, everything you need. Not a marathon. Maybe we can get that going for a marathon soon. That's that's some of the hope. Well, and it was even cool when we were over there. Like, I think we had, I don't remember if it was James's club or someone else, but we had that night of like organized intervals that we did with a bunch of, a bunch of marathoners. Um, and that was so cool. And we did actually, we went to the pub after. So <laughs> we did the workout first though, but 
uh, it was, yeah, it was so neat to see, like, the, the structure and, like, oh, yeah, you just go down the canal and there's the boathouse and, you know, you can change here and, and just get on the water. And it was, it was something that was really, really cool um, to experience, made us, like, super jealous, too. Toilets and showers are a big plus. So back on the race, like, do, do your club members, like, do they support you during the race? What kind of support do you have? Feed staff, bank runners, things of that nature. So it's a it's massive part of the race is having a good support crew. Um, the way I like to do it is you have two cars of kind of as many friends as are stupid enough to say yes or married enough to say yes. Um, <laughs> and... So and then because you're getting in and out of the boat so much, we do no in-boat feeding pretty much. It's like you get out of the boat, you picked it up, and then there's someone standing there with some food for you to shove it in your mouth. I think I nearly bit off a few fingers this year. Uh, and then you're kind of running as hard as you can whilst chewing, thinking, why on earth did I decide this was a good idea to eat? And you're back in the boat. Hopefully they've changed the drink over. Um and yeah, back in the canal and away you go. So you really need six pretty good friends um, yeah, to support you the whole way down um, through the night. It's just great fun. Oh, I, I've supported more than I've actually raced it. Um, and it, I, I absolutely love it every time I do it. If ever anyone wants to come over, I will be pretty hard pressed to say no if you ask me to do support for you. <laughs> Unless I'm actually racing. But and you definitely need a local, um, which, again, we I think when we raced, we probably could have had more people than we needed by a long shot. Like, people offered to help. And, and the team we had was amazing. I mean, James and Mike and Shireen and Alan were, were fantastic. Uh, I don't think we could have done better. But uh, they the roads and the driving is crazy when you're from there probably but it's just you know it doesn't make sense in like the, the american mindset like we're just like oh we'll drive down here and maybe we'll be able to get to the canal and we're like how do you know where it is and you just like cross three roads and like you know guys don't have stop signs like i don't know what that's about but <laughs> so i would definitely recommend if you're thinking of going um working with uh, you know, just contacting anyone over there and they'll be able to help you get some support because it, it would be wild to try to do it not not knowing where you're at. Yeah, I think even this year, uh, my mum, brother and my fiance were all in one car together and they're sort of slightly less experienced at the canoe support side of things. They're very good at knowing sort of what we need and pretty fit. Uh, there was one portage they got to I'd set up uh, Google pins, so like, this can't go wrong, Google pins. Um, and it was Marlo, uh, Marsh, sorry, which is a slightly more complicated one. So I dropped three pins. I was like, this is the car park. This is where we get out of the canoe. And this is where we're going to get back in the canoe. And they're all in slightly different places. So I'm not sure, no one's confessed who selected which pin to drive to. Um, but they decided it was a good idea to go to Marsh, get out. Uh, which is where we get out of the canoe, which is on the wrong side of the river to where they needed to have parked the car. So my brother and fiance are running around at about two o'clock in the morning in these, they're trying to get through people's gardens. 
they come back to the car they're like we can see the paddlers but we don't know how to get to them and they look at the map and they're like oh my god uh, we're on the wrong side of the river so then they have it like a 10 minute drive to get round to the right side of the river um and then oh, this year they had uh they were worried about the river levels so support crew had to wear buoyancy aids while they're down by the river so my brother and angelo were running across to the, they were halfway to us and then they were like oh no we haven't got our buoyancy aids so they had to go back to the car to get the buoyancy aids and then they then they're running back across this is one of the longer portages so it's like a 700 meter portage um and they're running back and then they still have to hang around and wait for us for 10 minutes in the cold but um, <laughs> it's just sort of even if you're pretty well kitted out you can still make these stupid mistakes because you've been up for you know 20 hours at that point and it's great it's amazing fun to hear all these stories afterwards <laughs> now this year i think you guys have mentioned several times the water was um you had good flow and i know uh, there were a couple of Ameri American teams that, that went over and raced this year, and it was a bit stressful getting to know if you were going to start or not. So was that like stress for you, or uh, I guess how did you feel like prepared for the higher flow? Um, so we were pretty confident in our ability. We thought it would be great fun. Um, sort of earlier in the year it was looking like it was going to be a high year and we were sort of getting excited thinking maybe we might be able if we have enough rain we might be able to catch Mike and Rebecca's time um, and so we sort of we were practicing a lot in these really high flow I absolutely loved paddling with Betsy it was just I had complete confidence in the boat all the time and we were like right we need to get a bit of practice at night um, ideally on the course and so the river was flowing at about 150 cubic meters a second which was a little bit higher than when it was raced um, so we go we started off sort of right down on the bottom of the canal and then came out onto the river um, it was about a four hour paddle about three hours in the dark um, you know we're ticking off kilometers at sort of less than four minutes which is uh, normally for flat water on the canal we're looking at about six minutes a kilometer you know so on the river at night on our own doing sort of less than four minutes a kilometer was just it was absolutely mad fun um but then at the time we're thinking this is you know we're having great fun but if people knew we were up to this they'd probably be telling us off and we'd get in lots of trouble but then race day comes around and we're going oh we've paddled it loads higher than this before um so yeah it was a great experience we were still a little bit nervous about getting in just because of the structure um, of how they'd set out their assessment. Um, I think it is hard for an international. It's not so much that the water conditions were challenging. It's about knowing where to go when. So on that night paddle we did, we were coming in across one of these weirs, uh, just paddling across the top of it. And all of a sudden our boat just got pulled sort of three or four feet just to the right. Out of, like we knew there was a big drag, but it just happened. And we were like, oh, wow, that's different. Um, but then, you know, we knew it was going to or it could happen. And so we were able to react and paddle away completely safely. So it's nothing you couldn't figure out really easily. Um, but it's just you know, knowing in the dark where you are um, is the challenge. But it, were, it was unusually high this year. Um, so, yeah. 
the year that I raced, I can't remember which of the weirs it was, but on the Thames, there was a K2 that got sucked in and they got stuck on it sideways. Um, and we were, you know, a, you know, a few meters off of them, like definitely not in the weir, like that close to the weir, but, you know, we saw them there. So we were coming in and uh, we were yelling to the safety and race officials that, hey, like someone's stuck over there. And I never heard what happened, so I assume they got off okay, but um it's definitely like that is one of the dangers at night you know you're paddling next to these long i mean i don't know are they at least 40 or 50 meters i feel like some of those the weir heads there and you, you it would be very easy to get sucked in if you weren't sure where you were at or aware that that could happen i think so sorry. go ahead oh a particular challenge this year was so the organizers put in quite a lot of extra measures so it was quite a small field anyway, about 80 boats. Usually you get about 200 boats going for the non-stop race. Um, and then that got whittled down to about 40 boats in the end were actually allowed to set off. And that's 40 boats starting in a window. The first boat set off at quarter past five in the morning. And the last boat set off at maybe 5.30 in the evening, all aiming for that same tide window. Um, so actually 40 boats over this 125 mile course was really not a lot. So this year in particular, um, I think that made it hard for the guys that didn't know the route so well was that there weren't other boats around to follow, um, which they usually would be. Um, yeah, obviously we knew the route really well, but we still, I think we got overtaken by a couple of fast K2s at the start and then we were pretty much on our own the whole way. Um, I'm going to ask a really, like a, a really interesting, but probably maybe even a dumb question. But you say like know the route, and I'm picturing these canals and stuff like that. Is it possible to like take a wrong turn, like zig when you should have zagged, and end up uh, somewhere completely incorrect? Ah, uh, there's a couple of spots. Um, if you're fully switched on and you're expecting them, then they're pretty hard to miss. Um, if you're having, you know, I know Joe and Dylan, for instance, did make a wrong turn um, coming into Aldermaston. This is something no US crew is ever going to do ever again, because um, they're all going to hear about Joe and Dylan who went right when they should have turned left. <laughs> um, but it was very unfortunate for them. I think they were having a few other troubles already. Um, it's something that the support crew would have shouted out at them as well, um, you know, turn left. But I think they were a little bit worried about how the guys were getting on and so their minds were wandering. Um, apart from that one turn, if you came over, we'd try and get you out there um, just so you can see it. Other than that, when you get to the Thames, make sure you turn right, which hopefully you're going to come over when there's plenty of flow. If you turn onto the Thames and you think, wow, we're hardly moving and there's no one else around, you, you might be going upstream. Um, but that's <laughs> you may have hard. made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh apart from that you can pretty much i don't know betsy you probably have a better opinion on that than me because i've been doing it for the last 12 years but. yeah i mean i think it's a lot of the canal section is super straightforward right it's literally like a straight line impossible to mess up so that part's super easy i definitely think the points that james mentioned and then the other parts where i have 
where I really appreciated having done the course before, not to mention sitting behind James, who's just like, okay, here the river is going to turn left in about 500 meters. And then after that is going to slightly, slightly turn to the right. And then after that, we have this portage. This is the name of the portage. We'll get out on the left and it'll be about a 50 meter run. And then we're gonna get out on the right and we have to go up to shoulders at this. Literally <laughs> narrated the entire time. Could not be more grateful. Uh, but, uh, you know, not having that in the boat um, there's definitely like some sections at night where we got this beautiful sort of like foggy mist happening. Um, and it does kind of limit your visibility at night. And so there are a few areas where, you know, I might just be kind of checking, like, should I be more to the left, more to the right? Like, which way does the river bend here? Um, but nothing that's going to be disastrous. It's just more about kind of like, am I going to be in the right position? Okay. Right on, right on. Well, walk us through your race this year, right? Champions. Um, walk us through how to go from start to finish, right? Um, so we were feeling pretty hyped up um, coming into it. Um, so like you say, we picked our start time. We were pretty confident. We were thinking if this goes really, really well, we might be able to do like a sub 18 hour time if we have a perfect run with perfect conditions. Um, so we set our schedule so that if it went you know, we knew that was going to be pretty unlikely, but we thought the river is really going. We might absolutely fly down. We want to give ourselves the opportunity to set an amazing time. Um, so we started about 20 past two in the afternoon. Um, we were a little bit nervous, which was something new for me. Last time I did the race, I was very confident that if I got to the end, I was going to win. Um, whereas obviously we had Joe and Dylan chasing us down. They started about half an hour after us. Um, the first there'd been quite a lot of rain in the build-up and that first bit it had washed so many reeds and so many leaves into that first 14 mile section with no portages that it was just unbelievable I, I think I probably cleared the bow 200 times it was dreadful um, but then you know we got through and we're kind of going well actually we're racing against a load of k2s who can't clear their bow and have rudders so it's going to be worse for them than it is for us. Um, we had a couple of, sorry, go ahead, Betsy. I was just going to say, I think the other part of that that made that first canal section so much worse is that we had literally done it two weeks prior because there's this whole series of lead up races. And so that was the fourth one called Waterside D. Two weeks prior, we had just done that exact section and it was totally different. Like the water level was fine. There was no debris, no issues we updated our like time schedule based on what we had just done at the race two weeks prior had no idea to expect that and then we get on the canal and it's just like awful so i i think that was part of what made that section really terrible yeah, but I'm, I'm guessing i'm guessing james is like an expert at mastering or at clearing the bow right and pretty good at it long reach yeah yeah so it's slightly more difficult in the icfs than in the pro boats that was some, when i came over to florida in 2015 i had no idea that you could just kind of do a funky little reach and not actually miss a stroke to clear the bow so but in the, particularly for betsy and i we both had to be sat as far back as possible to trim the boat um so i have to i had to miss a stroke to clear the bow um so i just have to flick the paddle around in my hand and then sort of pump the leaves off the front but I think most of the time I got that down to about one stroke, maybe two a few times, but it was unbelievable. Um, and then we hit the portages after that. So you spend the first, or for me, I spent the first 
two hours thinking, oh my God, my ass hurts so much. When are we going to get to this first portage? And then you spend the next six hours thinking, oh my God, why are there so many portages? <laughs> so, but that was, like I say, we trained really hard for that. Um, and we knew that, so when I did it in 2014, um, if I'm too many anecdotes, you just tell me to hurry up. No, keep going, <laughs> man. This is great. This is absolutely like uh quick interjection. So you two are aware, like the best guests, the best episodes just tell stories <laughs> and you are killing it. Just keep it up. So in 2014, uh, Neil Weisner Hanks and I think Gareth Stevens came and did the race. Um, and I don't know how their race panned out. I've never sat down with Neil and actually talked about how his race went but he did he invited us to florida so he can't have gone too badly um and he and his partner did they were within a minute of me and my partner to this first checkpoint at pusey which is 14 miles in uh just paddling um so like we're thinking or i'm thinking these guys from the us you know they can run these boats really fast but once we hit those portages, you know, we've been practicing this for months um, and they just haven't had quite had the time. So we find out that they're six minutes ahead of us. Um, and I'm kind of thinking as long as they're not more than 10 minutes ahead of us, we're still in with a shout of how this is going to go. And that kind of got into my head a bit. Um, then there were some fast K2s that had caught us um, and gone past. And I'm kind of thinking this is all happening a little bit too early for my liking. You know, maybe I've really, it's Betsy's first time doing the race. I've sort of gone, oh, I've done this before. You know, it's going to be, this is how it's going to happen. And then suddenly we've had all, you know, we've had an awful first pound. Um, and we've got overtaken by all these fast K2s. And I'm thinking, wow, if she says, can we stop? I'm just going to say yes. And, you know, <laughs> go and enjoy my Easter weekend. Um, but I think you knew that the faster water was coming. Yeah, I was, um, I mean, we were definitely suffering and it was worse than expected, which is just like not the feeling you want. But I knew that we were going to hit that fast water and I was just so looking forward to getting that flow and just like paddling the more fun sections of the course. Um, yeah, the thought never uh, crossed my mind. Betsy, but how, you know, having raced the Clinton a few times and then raced several other races all over the place, um, how did you think that, like, that section, I mean, you, you, what, you do 50 portages in, like, 35-ish miles, right? So it's, like, you're out of the boat all the time. Um, how did you feel, like, prep-wise and then, like, in the race, like, did, did that seem, like, easier than you thought it would be or about what you expected? Yeah. I mean, I think I we really did so much prep on the portages. I'm so amazed, Rebecca, that you and Mike came over and just like did a week and then aced those portages. Um, it took me a lot of time <laughs> and a lot of practice. I wouldn't, say we, I wouldn't say we aced them. It was like six inches of mud and we were like walking most of the time because we kept falling down. He's like, you guys, like you're, you're paddling really fast but like you're gonna give up a lot of time if you keep portaging this way so i don't think i don't think anyone was too impressed by our efforts but in practice it was going pretty good <laughs> well you met you managed them for sure foot footwear is a big tip that was one of my big learnings this year 
I got these like trail shoes that have these like massive, they're basically like cleats, but even deeper like treads on them. Um, that was, that was great. Cause a lot of it is just like vertical mud. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we I did so much portage games. I really that. <laughs> God. If you're listening right now, the plans are going over. Footwear is very important and vertical mud, right? I'm not sure I've ever heard the term vertical mud before, but vertical mud. Um, that does no, that's great. Once you hit the Thames, you start getting proper sort of tarmac or brickwork portages. Um, the early bit of the canal is came over. Um, it it was so muddy and horrible. Um, we, I think we had pretty good conditions underfoot. I don't remember it feeling too bad. The biggest problem we had was that why, when we got down onto the Thames, there was so much water, a load of the put-ins put were flooded. So it's like, oh man, I really wasn't ready for this. So, two o'clock in the morning, it's about six degrees Celsius and I'm knee deep in river water. Um, I didn't enjoy that brilliantly. Um, that was something with where I I was planning on changing to Gore-Tex shoes at night, but I stayed in my non-Gore-Tex shoes so that they they sort of drain a bit, basically. Um, so my feet didn't just stay completely mushy. Um, okay, so we're at, we're at nighttime at this point in the race, and it's six degrees. What was the uh, six degrees Celsius? Yes. What was what was the uh, what was the starting temperature? Oh, it was around. 14 degrees Celsius, pretty bright sunshine. Um, it didn't get too cold. Some years it gets really cold. Some years it stays really hot. Um, I think one year it was sort of 20 degrees right through the night, which is crazy hot for England in April. Um, the, the year before I did the race, it went down to like minus four or five at night. And there's these kayakers coming along with their peaked caps and sort of three inch icicles hanging off their peaks of there. And people's spare paddles are getting frozen onto the canoe. Um, I, I don't know of any other year it's been quite that cold. But. Okay, so so during this, is it uh, any any like clothing wardrobe changes? Anything? Take a jacket or just run it straight from start to finish? Um, that's very much personal preference. We would we planned on doing a kit change. Um, so dreadnought reach is where you come off the canal you join the thames um, all right i gotta interrupt real quick did you just say dreadnought reach yeah no idea why it's called dreadnought reach <laughs> that might be the most awesome place <laughs> in all of paddling racing right <laughs> dreadnought reach that is sweet sorry carry on that's quite right um it's kind of it's it's the psychological halfway point it's you're pretty much halfway time wise you know hopefully you've ticked off the canal and you're into some more exciting river water um or more fast flowing river water not necessarily that exciting um and lots of people use that as a time to change clothes for us the temperature had really changed by that point so i think we about six hours in i picked up a hat i think you were pretty cozy the whole way through though betsy yeah i just had the hat on at the same time i think we put the hats on at newbury yeah and then I just put on an extra pair of um, trousers, aka pants, depending on where you live, um, at Dreadnought Reach. 
that was coming into Newbury was another beautiful James isn't usually a bow paddler moment. Uh, where Betsy's going, oh, I, th- I think it might be time to turn our lights on. It's getting pretty dark. And I'm like, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then we stop, turn the lights on. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a really good idea. <laughs> I just would have plowed on into the pitch black without. But, yeah. Um, so that's one of the rules. Once after dusk, um, which is sort of about half an hour before it actually gets dark, you have to be in front and rewasting white lights um just sort of so you can be seen by other river users um so yeah yeah no there is there's when you say other river users there is other watercraft on this waterway right like actual powerboat users um i what what do they call the big long boats um it's a barge or a narrow boat um which okay. is not all narrow boats are narrow <laughs> as uh get wide beam boats which are like two boats or it looks like two boats made into one um that was one of our peeves on the initial section was there were it was quite a sunny easter weekend so there were various higher canal boats out and some of them didn't really have a clue what they were doing and some of them just seemed to ignore us so there were a couple of times where we had to kind of stop and wait for two boats to pass each other before there was room for us to carry on and there was a wide beam boat going through a narrow part of the canal and it's pretty awkward to get in and out at some of these places um so you just kind of have to sit there and take a drink for 20 seconds and then get back on with it as soon as you can try not to shout at people too loudly <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that was good betsy fun. shouts at people doesn't she like i can see it I, like, do I, shout I just know it <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that you knew that. <laughs> you could guess that that was really <laughs> yeah. But there were some really nice canal boat users who I said nice things back to them. Um, and then there were some less nice ones where I expressed disappointment in their choices. There was a very cute group of quite young kids um, who there was like ten of them on the bow of this canal boat, and they're going, "Are you going to London?" It's like, yeah, we're going to London. And they all scream back, good luck. And we're both like nearly crying. And it's like, oh my God, that was so sweet. Well, that's awesome. That, that is, that's really cool. Uh, right on. So, hey, you're coming into London, right? R- wrap your race up for us. Um, you're on the home stretch. Anything fun and exciting, or was it just grinder to the end and, and collect the W? Yeah. It, we kind of we knew we knew we were going to win. Um, we knew we weren't going to break the record, and it just took forever. Um, <laughs> it, so it's it's 17 miles at the end. It takes about two hours. I think Mike and Rebecca did it in about an hour 50. Um, and you know you just keep grinding it out until you get down to take the bridges off in your head. And then eventually you come around a corner and you see Westminster Bridge in the London Eye. And you think, oh, my God, we're here. Thank God for that. Um, and then just keep going all the way. If ever you come and do the race, the finish line is about 60 metres after Westminster Bridge. So, so many people, they do their big sprint finish. They go under the bridge and they go, yeah. And then they drift across the finish line 30 seconds later. <laughs> 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 That's uh, 
and we we knew that because James told us like keep paddling past the bridge. So Mike and I like when we went over Teddington the last the last uh, lock so the last portage, we were like right on pace with the old record. So we knew we're like we have to go as hard as we can like the rest of the way to hopefully get ahead and. Um, our, our feed team was amazing and they, they actually like timed us just right. So if we were exactly on pace, we'd get the most flow pulling us down the Thames. Um, so we, I think we may have had the fastest time down the Thames that year. Like we were there on the tidal Thames, like when we got to that last 17 miles, like we just hit like crazy good flow. So I think we ended up breaking the record by like minutes, you know, which was awesome, but we didn't know that. So we, like, see the bridge, we see the London Eye, we're like, okay, we're almost there, like, keep paddling. We, like, paddled, like, so hard, and we, like, we almost missed the takeout, which is, like, some steps, like, off to the side. Like, it was, it was, like, dicey if we were going to get there, and then it's, like, you can't go back upstream. Like, we're going, I mean, really fast, I don't know, 10 miles an hour. <laughs> like, we were not going to go up against that. Um, so that was, I always think of that, like, he's like, don't stop because people always stop before the end. And we were just like, we were not going to stop. We were going to the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's at least 80 bridges between that last portage and the finish line. And you just keep, you're like, oh, there's another bridge. The next one might be it. And I don't know. I don't know if you felt that way, Betsy. Maybe you knew how many there were. I'm sure James does. (laughs) I had no idea. But James was narrating every bridge as we went, and it was like the only thing that was helping me maintain my sanity at that point. <laughs> so one, I do a bit of outrigger paddling um, at a club called OC UK, which are based on that bit of water. So it's something that the first time I did the race, I didn't really know that we call it the tideway at all. And me and my partner Tim were going along and we were like, we must be there, we must be there. And then we see this bridge that's like a bluey greeny colour, and we're like, oh yeah, that must be it. Oh, the London Eye and the Houses of Parliament aren't there, though. So maybe, and this is, turns out this bridge is about halfway down the tideway. We've still got about an hour still to go. <laughs> so that was something I really brushed up on for this year, was making sure I knew exactly where I was the whole way down that tideway. So I didn't get overexcited <laughs> and go too early. Um, but yeah, it was great. Oh, that's great. Well, congratulations on your win this year. Um, really appreciate uh, both of you coming on. It, it's been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful episode. Can't say thank you enough for it. Um, if you would, um, as a newcomer to the race over there and as a seasoned veteran master connoisseur, uh, each give us your best pieces of advice for people that would be interested in doing your race. Um, so I would say really practice those portages. Um, you know, you're going to be able to run the boat faster than we can, but get in and out super, look up, um, some of the world marathon kayak portage stuff, you know, they're standing up in the boat before it, before it's anywhere near the bank and they're standing up in the boat, pushing off. And if you can, that's how you win this race is quick portaging. Um, okay. Quick portaging. Yeah. as many one-legged squats as you can manage <laughs> <laughs> right on betty what's your best piece of advice you'd give somebody i was also going to say portage practice um but i think the other piece which rebecca has kind of gotten that as well is how important your support crew is 
and that you really want to have a really strong support crew who knows the course, um, who can really just like guide you down it and help you out with everything. So good news. We have lots of amazing support crew here who I'm sure would be very happy to support some more Americans and show them how to yeah. forage. And, and show them how to portage. Exactly. I'm going to be right back. I'm going to practice my portaging. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Thank you very much for coming on the episode. Uh, but until next time, keep paddling on. Thank you for listening to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, where we love marathon canoe racing and aren't afraid to say it. Be sure to visit the website at CanoeRaceWorld.com, and don't forget to support our sponsors who make this whole thing possible. Until next time, keep paddling. <laughs>